Chapter Thirteen, Part One of Two of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Bracci. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wake. Section Twenty-Three. I shall be forced to omit much of what happened during the interval between the election of Buchanan and the campaign of 1858, for the reason that it would not only swell this work to undue proportions, but be a mere repetition of what has been better told by other writers. It is proper to note in passing, however, that Mr. Lincoln's reputation as a political speaker was no longer bounded by the border lines of Illinois. It had passed beyond the Wabash, the Ohio, and the Mississippi rivers. And while his pronounced stand on the slavery question had increased the circle of his admirers in the North, it provoked a proportionate amount of execration in the South. He could not help the feeling that he was now the leading Republican in his state, and he was therefore more or less jealous of his prerogative. Formidable in debate, plain in speech, without pretense of literary acquirements, he was none the less self-reliant. He already envied the ascendancy and domination Douglas exercised over his followers and felt keenly the slight given him by others of his own faith whom he conceived were disposed to prevent his attaining the leadership of his party i remember early in eighteen fifty eight of his coming into the office one morning and speaking in very dejected terms of the treatment he was receiving at the hands of horace greeley i think greeley he complained is not doing me right his conduct i believe savors a little of injustice I am a true Republican and have been tried already in the hottest part of the anti-slavery fight, and yet I find him taking up Douglas, a veritable dodger, once a tool of the South, now its enemy, and pushing him to the front. He forgets that when he does that he pulls me down at the same time. I fear Greeley's attitude will damage me with Sumner, Seward, Wilson, Phillips, and other friends in the East. This was said with so much of mingled sadness and earnestness that I was deeply impressed. Lincoln was gloomy and restless the entire day. Greeley's letters were driving the enthusiasm out of him. He seemed unwilling to attend to any business, and finally, just before noon, left the office going over to the United States courtroom to play a game of chess with Judge Treat, and did not return again that day. I pondered a good deal over Lincoln's dejection, and that night, after weighing the matter well in my mind, resolved to go to the eastern states myself and endeavor to sound some of the great men there. The next day, on apprising Lincoln of my determination, he questioned its propriety. Our relations, he insisted, were so intimate that a wrong construction might be put upon the movement. I listened carefully to him, but as I had never been beyond the Alleghanies, I packed my valise and went notwithstanding his objections. I had been in correspondence on my own account with Greeley, Seward, Sumner, Phillips, and others for several years, and kept them informed of the feelings of our people and the political campaigns in their various stages, but had never met any of them save Greeley. I enjoyed heartily the journey and the varied sights and scenes that attended it. Aside from my mission, the trip was a great success. The magnificent buildings, the display of wealth in the large cities and prosperous manufacturing towns, broadened the views of one whose vision had never extended beyond the limits of the Illinois prairies. In Washington I saw and dined with Trumbull, who went over the situation with me. Trumbull had written to Lincoln shortly before that he thought it useless to speculate upon the further course of Douglas, or the effect it is to have in Illinois or other states. 
He himself does not know where he is going or where he will come out. At my interview with Trumbull, however, he directed me to assure Mr. Lincoln that Douglas did not mean to join the Republican Party, however great the breach between himself and the administration might be. We Republicans here, he said exultantly in another letter to Lincoln, are in good spirits and are standing back to let the fight go on between Douglas and his former associates. Lincoln will lose nothing by this if he can keep the attention of our Illinois people from being diverted from the great and vital question of the day to the minor and temporary issues which are now being discussed. In Washington I also saw Seward, Wilson, and others of equal prominence. Douglas was confined to his house by illness, but on receiving my card he directed me to be shown up to his room. We had a pleasant and interesting interview. Of course the conversation soon turned on Lincoln. In answer to an inquiry regarding the latter, I remarked that Lincoln was pursuing an even tenor of his way. He is not in anybody's way, I contended, not even in yours, Judge Douglas. He was sitting up in a chair smoking a cigar. Between puffs he responded that neither was he in the way of Lincoln, nor anyone else, and did not intend to invite conflict. He conceived that he had achieved what he had set out to do, and hence did not feel that his course need put him in opposition to Mr. Lincoln or his party. Give Mr. Lincoln my regards, he said rather warmly, when you return, and tell him I have crossed the river and burned my boat. Leaving Washington, my next point was New York, where I met the editor of the anti-slavery standard, Horace Greeley, Henry Ward Beecher, and others. I had a long talk with Greeley, whom I noticed leaned towards Douglas. I found, however, he was not at all hostile to Lincoln. I presented the latter's case in the best phase I knew how but while I drew but little from him I left feeling that he hadn't been entirely won over. He introduced me to Beecher, who, as everyone else did, inquired after Lincoln, and through me sent him word of encouragement and praise. From New York I went to Boston, and from the latter place I wrote Lincoln a letter which happily I found not long since in a bundle of Lincoln's letters, and which I insert here, believing it affords a better reflex of the situation at the time than anything I might see fit to say now. Here it is. Revere House, Boston, Massachusetts, March 24, 1858. Friend Lincoln, I am in the city of notions, and am well, very well indeed. I wrote you a hasty letter from Washington some days ago, since which time I have been in Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, and now here. I saw Greeley, and so far as any of our conversation is interesting to you, I will relate. And we talked, say, twenty minutes. He evidently once Douglas sustained and sent back to the Senate. He did not say so in so many words, yet his feelings are with Douglas. I know it from the spirit and drift of his conversation. He talked bitterly, somewhat so, against the papers in Illinois, and said they were fools. I asked him this question, Greeley, do you want to see a third party organized, or do you want Douglas to ride to power through the North, which he has so much abused and betrayed? And to which he replied, let the future alone, it will all come right. Douglas is a brave man. Forget the past and sustain the righteous. Good God, righteous, eh? Since I have landed in Boston, I have seen much that was entertaining and interesting. This morning I was introduced to Governor Banks. He and I had a conversation about republicanism, and especially about Douglas. He asked me this question. You will sustain Douglas in Illinois, won't you? And to which I said, no, never. He affected to be much surprised, and so the matter dropped and turned on republicanism, or in general, Lincoln. Greeley's and other sheets that laud Douglas, Harris, et al., want them sustained, and will try to do it. 
several persons have asked me the same question which banks asked and evidently they get their cue ideas or what not from greeley seward at all by the by greeley remarked to me this the republican standard is too high we want something practical this may not be interesting to you but however it may be it is my duty to state what is going on so that you may head it off counteract it in some way i hope it can be done the northern men are cold to me somewhat repellent your friend w h herndon on my return home i had encouraging news to relate i told lincoln of the favorable mention i had heard of him by phillips sumner seward garrison beecher and greeley i brought with me additional sermons and lectures by theodore parker who was warm in his commendation of lincoln one of these was a lecture on the effect of slavery on the american people which was delivered in the music hall in boston and which i gave to lincoln who read and returned it he liked especially the following expression which he marked with a pencil in which he in substance afterwards used in his gettysburg address democracy is direct self-government over all the people for all the people by all the people meanwhile passing by other events which have become interwoven in the history of the land we reach april eighteen fifty eight at which time the democratic state convention met and besides nominating candidates for state offices endorsed mr douglas's services in the senate thereby virtually renominating him for that exalted office in the very nature of things lincoln was the man already chosen in the hearts of the republicans of illinois for the same office and therefore with singular appropriateness they passed with great unanimity at their convention in springfield on the sixteenth of june the characteristic resolution that honorable abraham lincoln is our first and only choice for united states senator to fill the vacancy about to be created by the expiration of mr douglas's term of office there was of course no surprise in this for mr lincoln he had been all along led to expect it and with that in view had been earnestly and quietly at work preparing a speech in acknowledgment of the honor about to be conferred on him this speech he wrote on stray envelopes and scraps of paper as ideas suggested themselves putting them into a miscellaneous and convenient receptacle his hat as the convention drew near he copied the whole on connected sheets carefully revising every line and sentence and fastened them together for reference during the delivery of the speech and for publication the former precaution however was unnecessary for he had studied and read over what he had written so long and carefully that he was able to deliver it without the least hesitation or difficulty a few days before the convention when he was at work on the speech i remember that jesse k dubois who was auditor of the state came into our office and seeing lincoln busily writing inquired what he was doing or what he was writing lincoln answered gruffly it's something you may see or hear sometime but i'll not let you see it now i myself knew what he was writing but having asked neither my opinion nor that of anyone else I did not venture to offer any suggestions. After he had finished the final draft of the speech, he locked the office door, drew the curtain across the glass panel in the door, and read it to me. At the end of each paragraph, he would halt and wait for my comments. I remember what I said after hearing the first paragraph, wherein occurs the celebrated figure of the house divided against itself. It is true, but is it wise or politic to say so? He responded. That expression is a truth of all human experience a house divided against itself cannot stand and he that runs may read the proposition also is true and has been for six thousand years i want to use some universally known figure expressed in simple language as universally well known 
that may strike home in the minds of men in order to raise them up to the peril of the times. I do not believe I would be right in changing or omitting it. I would rather be defeated with this expression in the speech, and uphold and discuss it before the people, than be victorious without it. This was not the first time that Lincoln had endorsed the dogma that our government could not long endure part slave and part free. He had incorporated it in a speech at Bloomington in 1856, but in obedience to the emphatic protest of Judge T. Lyle Dickey and others who conceived the idea that its delivery would make abolitionists of all the North and slavery propagandists of all the South, and thereby precipitate a struggle which might end in disunion, he consented to suspend its repetition, but only for that campaign. Now, however, the situation had changed somewhat. There had been a shifting of scenes, so to speak. The Republican Party had gained some in strength and more in moral effectiveness and force. Nothing could keep back in Lincoln any longer sentiments of right and truth, and he prepared to give the fullest expression to both in all future contests. Before delivering his speech, he invited a dozen or so of his friends over to the library of the State House, where he read and submitted it to them. After the reading, he asked each man for his opinion. Some condemned, and not one endorsed it. One man, more forcible than elegant, characterized it as a fool utterance. Another said the doctrine was ahead of its time, and still another contended that it would drive away a good many voters fresh from the Democrats' ranks. Each man attacked it in his criticism. I was the last to respond. Although the doctrine announced was rather rank, yet it suited my views, and I said, Lincoln, deliver that speech as read, and it will make you president. At the time, I hardly realized the force of my prophecy. Having patiently listened to these various criticisms from his friends, all of which, with a single exception, were adverse, he rose from his chair, and after alluding to the careful study and intense thought he had given the question, he answered all of their objections substantially as follows. Friends, this thing has been retarded long enough. The time has come when these sentiments should be uttered, and if it is decreed that I should go down because of this speech, then let me go down linked to the truth. Let me die in the advocacy of what is just and right. The next day, the 17th, the speech was delivered just as we had heard it read. Up to this time, Seward had held sway over the North by his higher law sentiments, but the House divided against itself speech by Lincoln, in my opinion, drove the nail into Seward's political coffin. Lincoln had now created in reality a more profound impression than he or his friends anticipated. Many Republicans deprecated the advanced ground he had taken, the more so as the Democrats rejoiced that it afforded them an issue clear and well-defined. Numbers of his friends distant from Springfield, on reading his speech, wrote him censorious letters, and one well-informed co-worker predicted his defeat, charging it to the first ten lines of the speech. These complaints, coming apparently from every quarter, Lincoln bore with great patience. To one complainant who followed him into his office, he said proudly, If I had to draw a pen across my record and erase my whole life from sight, and I had one poor gift or choice left as to what I should save from the wreck, I should choose that speech and leave it to the world unerased. Meanwhile, Douglas had returned from Washington to his home in Chicago. Here he rested for a few days until his friends and co-workers had arranged the details of a public reception on the 9th of July, when he delivered from the balcony of the Tremont House a speech intended as an answer to the one made by Lincoln in Springfield. Lincoln was present at this reception, but took no part in it. The next day, however, he replied, 
both speeches were delivered at the same place leaving chicago douglas passed on down to bloomington and springfield where he spoke on the sixteenth and seventeenth of july respectively on the evening of the latter day lincoln responded again in a most effective and convincing effort the contest now took on a different phase lincoln's republican friends urged him to draw douglas into a joint debate and he accordingly sent him a challenge on the twenty fourth of july it is not necessary i suppose to reproduce here the correspondence that passed between these great leaders on the thirtieth douglas finally accepted the proposition to divide time and address the same audiences naming seven different places one in each congressional district outside of chicago and springfield for joint meetings the places and dates were ottawa august twenty one freeport august twenty seven jonesboro september fifteen charleston september eighteen galesburg october seven quincy october thirteen and alton october fifteen i agree to your suggestion wrote douglas that we shall alternately open and close the discussion i will speak at ottawa one hour you can reply occupying an hour and a half and i will then follow for half an hour at freeport you shall open the discussion and speak one hour i will follow for an hour and a half and you can then reply for a half an hour we will alternate in like manner in each successive place to this arrangement lincoln on the thirty-first gave his consent although he wrote by the terms as you propose you take four openings and closes to my three end of section twenty three recording by don bracci chicago illinois www.voicedon.com